Welcome to Everyday Animism, a weekly podcast exploring all things animism, particularly how animism impacts everyday life. The podcast is hosted by Kelly Harrell, Brandis Schnabel, and Janet Roper. Let's dive in. So um, we wanted to talk today. I have like no brain power to, to come up with some clever segue into our topic, so I'm just going to say we wanted to talk today about animism and the broken path, which I will let Kelly explain because she is much more articulate than me, even on days when I am half that brain capacity. Mm, I'm not sure about that, Brandy. (laughs) (laughs) You still have to do it. It comes and goes. Today's a good day. I'll give you that for articulation. So this topic kind of came about because of some things that are happening in the runic calendar right now when with the um the current half month which is Ewas. and for those of you who don't know um i write a weekly column and have for a long long time called the weekly rune which you can find at solenton arts and i also produce what in the weird a podcast that kind of fills in the blanks of how to um, work with the runic calendar and season and what each of the rune casts is, um, I guess, sort of teaching at this time. And the current half month rune is Ewaz. And Ewaz is known sort of as the animism rune. Uh, people call it the shamanism rune, but, you know, I go new places with things. And, um, the deal with Elwaz is it means the ability to go deeper with things, which in our lingo means to go to the spiritual level of things. And that's why I call it the animism rune, not just the shamanism rune, because animism came first. And so, um, you know, because we've been disconnected from having direct relationship with things, you know, we, we're forbidden culturally to go into direct relationship with things and historically have intentionally been cut off from animism. A few weeks ago in my podcast, I made the statement that Ewas and working with Ewas is the most rebellious thing you can do in rune work. And that got like a lot of kerfuffle, which made me happy, but but it, it was a really, you know, large ovary thing to say. And so um, a lot of times when people first come to animism, it's with rosy glasses. It's with this perspective of, you know, oh, this is what I've been looking for. And, um, you know, everybody's equal and we can finally all be one and the love and light thing. But what they bump into invariably is a deep sense of sadness because they finally realized that that break was intentional. It was not an accident. It's not an accident that you don't know how to form direct relationship. And that in the modern shamanic community among Western practitioners has been called the broken path or, or the orphan path. And again, Animism came first. So from my perspective, you know, we need to take this a step even deeper. We need to Ewa's even deeper and internalize that animism is a broken path for all of us. Like, you know, except for the handful of intact animistic cultures on the planet, 
the bulk of us have a deeply broken relationship to animism and you can't foray into it for long before things like grief and disappointment and anger come up. Because when you start to explore that relationship for yourself, you bump into ancestry, which usually encompasses being oppressed as well as being the oppressor. And you start to realize there's a much fuller picture to this than what we have and what we have kind of sought out as our spiritual relief. And and that's the part that's not rosy. So at the root of direct relationship for us, at the root of animism is a wound. And that, that wound, it can be referenced as the broken path. And so, you know, what, what I bumped into over the last week is that break happened in the past, but we are still breaking it. And I know that that's a hard thing for people to hear. It's a hard thing for me to hear and for me to sit with. But, but when we play into the big systems and, and, you know, when we look at how we treat other people, how we treat the environment, we have to examine how we are continuing to break our own path of animism. And that is where we go from here. So it's like yeah. being on a hamster wheel. Just keep going and going and going in circles without stepping off and doing something different. And I don't think we realize that, you know, I'm not saying that like some punitive thing. I'm including myself in that. It, it, it's just been a hard realization to look at the rune cast over the last week and say, dang, how am I one of those people who is not doing better? Like, where can I be doing better? If I say this is my path and I'm connected to all things, how am I making it better for everybody, not just myself? Right. I include myself in that, too. Hmm. And I think, too, like the the broken path thing for me, too, is like this grief of which I think most of us have, even people who are so broken path, you know, when when I first conceptualized it for myself was about, you know, the people that came before me didn't hand me some very clear lineage of practice and tradition and um, sort of spiritual foundation. I didn't have an understanding of where my people came from, what, what allies they worked with, what they called things, what their traditions were, you know, what the rituals were, what the traditions were. Like, I didn't have any of that aside from just like a very half-assed church attendance um, from my family. And so for me, it's in the practical sense, it's building an entire relationship from scratch. And I think the thing that I have struggled with and that I think a lot of people struggle with is that when you're trying to find that relationship and you're having to build it from scratch, you often end up picking up things that aren't yours. Mm. And so there's theft there. I mean, we're talking cultural appropriation and, and other things, but, but there's theft, but there's also what's permitted to be stolen by, you know, oppress it by, by most, by the most privileged part of our population 
when you steal something successfully, you know, it, it's warped over time. Like I think of yoga as it is in like that very love and light type of community versus yoga as it was likely in its earliest forms. And it's not benign that we sometimes pick up things that, and I'm not saying I don't have any nuanced understanding of yoga and our permission to do it or not do it, but there's a conversation there around like, what if it is ours? Who's using it in a way that's respectful? And there's so many other practices like that where it's not benign to pick it up and take it and make it work for you because just because you didn't have anything else. And then in that process, turn it into something else. I think that's, I think sometimes we don't really talk about the danger of successfully culturally appropriating. True. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yes. I had goosebumps when you were saying it, Brandy. And I think when there, you know, when someone has success with cultural appropriation, that success justifies their drive to keep doing it. It, it's it and not just their drive to keep doing it, but it suppresses any question of whether they should be like at a deeper animistic level. It, it just further colonizes their own internal processes to not even continuously examine whether this is the ethical thing to do. Right. And it's often not permitted to be a living and ever evolving understanding too. So there are a lot of things we have picked up and taken that are, that there are marginalized cultures stepping up and saying, Whoa, by the way, we're pissed about this. And we have a bit of a platform to talk about it. And we're saying it's not okay. And you should put it down or put the word down. You know, there's a lot of these practices that, we've stolen the context. It's not that you, you know, it's not that you can't burn something, uh, but when you call it smudging, mm, you've stepped outside of possibly your right to call it a certain thing. Or, I mean, there, there are hundreds of these practices and it's sort of this, I don't have a name for it. So who has a name for it? And I'll take it. And as we become more and more aware of it and there's more and more conversation about it, more and more things get taken away from privileged white people on a broken path who wanted a name for their shit. And we get more and more angry about things that we have to put down. And I, I think there's so much conversation available in how putting things down doesn't mean losing your spiritual practices, doesn't mean losing meaningful ritual. It, there's something else to that around finding a way to do it in a way that's yours and that's tricky when you don't know what's yours and that can change as you become more aware better informed and other people come to the table and bring their marginalized experiences and have more to say about things maybe you didn't know how to put down or didn't know to put down and i, I think that makes the broken path experience feel like a minefield sometimes. Mm-hmm. A minefield. Mm-hmm. Did I say minefield? Yeah, but you know, I was sitting here going, what a metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Um, but it, it does, like, I feel like I'm trying to, like, acknowledge that this is a hard way to navigate 
relationship with sacred and with source and in an, in an animistic way, but also that it isn't an excuse to not show up for it because we're also doing harm. And, and it's, once we become aware that even one person is offended or impacted or further marginalized by it, then we're intentionally doing harm. And that's a whole other level of doing harm. And I I feel like you can't even really start to realize the level of harm that you may be putting out into the world until you acknowledge the reasons that it was broken to start with. And, you know, there is a need to look in the past and the present at the same time and to be able to hold both of those with some level of respect and dignity for the people who, who have walked paths before you and your ancestry, for yourself, for the people walking the results of those paths now. And, and part of that is asking some really hard questions about the institutions that you support, the way you support them now, the way they support you, how they got where they are, if they really support you, and historically, how they gained their power. It matters. And I know they're hard questions. And, and I'm specifically saying, how, how can the church be what it is today without honoring how it got to be there, which was by usurping culture, period? That is the source of our biggest wound. And, and we don't talk about that in any communities, really, pagan communities or otherwise. We, we talk about how annoying they are right now. We don't talk about how it got the power that it has right now. And we have that conversation. We can't extricate ourselves from all these many systems that are the direct result of the power and oppression that the church brought so many different cultures. Absolutely. Yep. And it makes stepping into, you know, forward facing or outward practices really tricky. And it's, it's its own specific vein of anxiety that is involved in being willing to be spiritual and being willing to engage in authentic practices. There's, there's almost this sort of mandatory vulnerability to it of like, if you're going to do that, you have to be willing to at some point realize that maybe something needs to shift and I know we've all all three of us have gone through various versions of that of doing things a certain way realizing that there was a better way to do it not necessarily even in the logistics but in the language of it and in how we identify and I think when you can't show up for the nuance of that and the potential I mean, it's kind of the, fr- the fragility thing is like, we have to be able to have the resilience to do something and then have someone tell us we can't do it that way anymore, or that maybe we can't do it. Right. Right. And I think, I think some of that fragility comes from, I mean, frankly, getting away from it, getting away with it for centuries, but also that it is rooted ultimately in this wound of like, but I don't have a thing to default back to. I like, even for us, it's like what white person in America has a direct lineage and an unbroken connection to 
druidic practice or uh, like none of it none of it is a direct path no even when we're picking up things that are more more safely identified as something we have maybe a right to step into we're still doing it from a place of not having it handed to us through our own lineage and so it still carries complication it takes courage to hear what's being said and to being and to hearing that no you know you need to set this down no you're not mm-hmm. contributing to the betterment by doing this but i also think with that courage that sometimes it takes many hearings to be able to really hear that and take it in and all of a sudden realizing yes i was wrong in doing that and accepting accountability and responsibility there's a recursion in that kind of like organic approach to spirituality that we are terrified of. And that is, um, you know, when the, the objects of your spiritual path, whether that's guides, deities or whatever, tell you to put them down, to, to let them go step aside, because that's, that doesn't even occur to most. Why would my, why would my guide tell me to walk away from them? They're my guide. Like, there, there isn't even room for the concept that you might need to have a skill set and an, an ability and a flexibility to move on without this being. It's just assumed permanent. It's assumed predictable. And so anytime you interject any question that it wouldn't be, there is a tension that's there understandably. And yet, if we don't, learn how to ask ourselves those kinds of questions of our own volition, they will be interjected for us into our path. That's just the way it works. It, it will become unstable on its own. And we're there as a culture. We are so mm-hmm. fully there. Well, in that allowing that fluctuation of practice and understanding of source or, you know, whatever um, that's, in doctrine, I mean, it, it's we're trained to think that way by so many organized faiths. The idea is you go to someone who's been, you know, given, you know, a title, and then they will talk to God for you. And there's only one God, and we only do this thing. You only pray this way, and you only pray in this place. And so we live in a culture where those things are, you know we're raised to expect those things to be prescribed for us. And I think that goes beyond spiritual practice too. I mean, there's so much about the way we live in patriarchal capital capitalist societies that is prescriptive and, but it's prescriptive to keep us all in line. And I, part of me even wonders if, even if we weren't navigating broken paths, if our, if our spiritual practices wouldn't have ultimately brought us to this point of understanding them as more, more ever evolving than even how they started. Does that make sense? Like, would we not have gotten to this point anyway, right. where it needs to be f- flexible and it, it needs to be something that can evolve as we evolve as people, as a culture, but also individually. The tendency to mandate is colonization. Right. I mean, it, it, it just is. It doesn't matter what noun you plug into the sentence. Yeah. Yep. And it's worth, it, it just really is worth, for me, 
remembering that when I allow that kind of flexibility, I'm stepping out of that mm-hmm. and, and, and opportunities to put things down because they're not mine. That makes space in my life to find what is mine. I, and I think we don't, I think the initial reaction to, to this is cultural appropriation or this is theft or this is not yours or, you know, you weren't given permission for this, any of those things, our initial reaction of defensiveness and hurt. And there's, there's a, there's a grief component to like, but that was important to me. I don't think we allow that feeling enough to let it transform into and now I get to go find something that works even better, or I get to deepen my understanding of why this was important to me so that I can find the part of it that I can do in a way that doesn't cause harm or doesn't steal something or, you know, that can be mine. Isn't it better to have an opportunity, even if it's uncomfortable initially, to own something that I do on a daily basis more deeply? I do think it's important to mention that we are three white chicks and we understand it is not our place to educate other people on anti-racism and, you know, what is cultural appropriation. That's not the tone of what we're doing in this episode. Right. What, what, go ahead. Which is, I, I think why I'm trying to stick to like my experience and, what the opportunity is in that's also I'm trying to stay away from like specific instances and specific instruction around it other than to just listen because that can come from any direction and I mean there are a lot of ways that we can end up in this position so I think like to your point what we're talking about is when you come from a broken path this is a thing to just show up for and find your own way through it. Find other people who will with better nuance and more, more ability to do it from a place of authority, be able to tell you what you can and can't take from the available practices we have on the planet. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Cause we are, we really aren't talking about any one in particular practice just that there are a bunch that we as white people snatch up make ours sometimes even warp them in the process and then we get real salty about putting them down i think sometimes we think that we're the masters of our own lives uh, which is very very for me it very much sets a sense of closure Because if I'm the master, that means that I'm not open to hearing what other people have to say. But if we look at other people as having that information that we don't have, that we are lacking, and perhaps looking at them as, and I'm thinking of dragon stories now, which is why I'm using the term master, um, you know, as the master of a certain area, we can learn from them. And like you were saying, Brandy, that just adds so much to we know what is ours, what is not ours, and that adds um, a sense of being and also helps us, from my perspective, set up the boundaries of who we are. And I would, th- I would also add that, like, that, that, that statement of what's mine, what's not mine, even saying what's mine 
it's just worth adding the caveat for now. Yes, like, absolutely. Yes. What's mine right now to the degree that I'm aware it's able to be mine. And if I find out later it's rooted in something that isn't for me to take, then I put it down. Yeah. Cause we, we have the ability even on a broken path to break it down to just showing up outside and engaging with nature intuitively. Like we don't have to, it just, the things we put down, I don't think they have to steal our access to source to, to an animistic relationship because that just exists. I think sometimes in the past when I have felt com- complex feelings around something that I'm you know, supposedly not able to do and like getting to a point where I can put it down, it feels like then I've lost access to something that was important to me. And the fact is like we can always just engage intuitively and directly with everything around us And there's always a way to do that that isn't going to create harm. The fact that we have to sometimes look for it underneath what we were doing doesn't mean it's not there. The whole process that you described is maturing. It is stepping into elderhood. It is taking things deeper in a way that challenges you to get skills, to use your resources. That process is doing the work. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You know, Kelly, in your last episode about AWAS, um, you said something there that just really struck me. And again, I had the truth bumps. And you talked about working in community. And I think that always bears repeating that, you know, this is not something, a, a do it yourself kind of a program. We need to have the community because if we don't have the community, if we're not in community, then we're not being animistic. That's my interpretation, anyway, right. of what you were saying. Yeah, because when we put on superhero capes and think that we have to save the world or even just this one corner, this is my corner to save, it, it's a very separatist mentality. It's it's missing the flexibility. It's a mandate. Yeah. And it's worth looking at the content of that community too or the, the makeup of that community because if you, you know, I think that there's also a danger in going out and rounding up a bunch of people who have the same gaps in knowledge or blind spots that you do. And then using that to be affirming when it's really kind of a, a bubble for two instead of just your bubble. Um, So like a varied community of like, I mean, just being exposed, we have so much access to the entire planet that um, it's just worth remembering that it's good to get access to a lot of different perspectives. Absolutely. Right. And tagging on to what you said earlier, Brandy, I think it could be community for now because mm-hmm. it might be changing later on. It probably will. Right. Well, and finding people who are willing to grow with you. Like, you know, the three of us have been in community with a handful of people for a while and all of us have changed within our understanding of things. And we've been able to show up at different points and all at different rates of shifting for this conversation to change and all of our practices to change in, in ways that we've been willing to talk about, we've been openly uncomfortable about. 
And so I think that kind of community is huge because then when you put something down, you, you, you don't lose everything. You still have a handful of people who are going to help you figure it out. And I think that's a really hard thing about a broken path too, is where do you find that community when you don't have a church and you don't have a very clear cut, like these are your people. It can be hard to find that community. It is. It, it's the number one thing that clients and students say to me, that, but I, but I'm alone in this. And, and I, that's a part of the wound, I think that has to be grieved also. But part of that grieving is growing the skills to step out and, and find community on your own. And yeah. You can't do that from a wounded place. I mean, sometimes you can, but I think, you know, making a decision to investigate that and sit with that, breathe through whatever feelings around the separation from animism come up and see what can be beyond that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that it doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It takes patience. Well, and, and I think sometimes we, you know, being on a broken path and, and which is often a solitary path, we tend to try to look at, I mean, there's, I definitely remember a franticness in my twenties of trying to find my community and, um, just, you know, I, I would look for things that were appealing and it, it was, it, it just never really served me. And I think it's also been important for me to understand that even within a community where we're all willing to have tough and nuanced spiritual conversations in general, I'm still, um, I'm still alone in my specific set of practices and experiences and beliefs. Right. So I think there's also danger in looking for a community where everyone in that community is going to think the same way you do. And we're built to look for that too in, you know, in a nation where you tend to find that at church. And I I don't find that that's where I've been most served is to find, you know, communities where everyone believes a very specific doctrine. What I've found with you all and just, you know, my spiritual community is a group of people who who have some common language and some willingness to hold space for where our language isn't common, but sort of still speaks to what we're all experiencing. So I think it's inc- important to not look for the community that perfectly mirrors everything right. you experience and believe. Right. And for people who hold space as you are shifting too, because in our community, there's been a lot of shifting from everybody. And mm-hmm. what I've experienced is, is I'm shifting. I've got other people who are holding space for me so that I've got the uh, luxury of being able to shift as it needs to happen. Mm-hmm. I think we have to make room also for what is not healable. Uh, you know, like, you know, we, we all, in our group, we come back to this so often that it is about tending. It is not about healing with this perspective to completely remove or absolve or release this, um, this pain around 
animism in its past, in our past, and how we bring it forward now, how we live into it now. But, but sitting with the possibility that there's not an end to this experience, that as with so many things, we won't see the outcome of our good efforts. And that's okay. Because again, that's what makes it animistic. It is not all about us. Yeah. Right. And we'll always be able to trace, you know, even people after us will always be able to trace it back to a fracture in that line. It doesn't mean that the work that we do moving forward from that can't be transformative in and of itself. While also acknowledging that it's a little harder or it's a little stings a little more to have to reinvent the wheel it feels like sometimes right right sometimes I feel that's all I'm doing is reinventing the wheel and again that's where the support of the community we're in that's where that's really helpful for me Mm -hmm. I adore this conversation yeah I was just thinking (laughs) I'm really grateful to be able to have this talk with the two of you yeah. Yep. And I, I think in the same way that it's really great that we're talking just more globally about cultural appropriation, that it is important for us, for, you know, white women, for people of enormous privilege to, to have our own conversation, you know, in our own space, you know, where we're not taking up a lot of room and where we're, where we're actually doing the work of reconciling what we're putting down and finding what we're allowed to, to develop for ourselves rather than, I don't know, does that, I'm, I'm not saying that right, but yeah, I think it's important. I don't think we're having a lot of this conversation of like, okay, it was cultural appropriation and now what do I do and sharing what we're doing uh, both for accountability, but also for the person who's like, well, shit, I said, you know, now I, under-, you know, someone said I couldn't do it. Uh, I get it now. I'm not doing it. But then what do I do? Yeah. And I think that's an important right. conversation for us to have, because otherwise we're just going to go pick up something else and probably step on someone else. And I think the more we can have this conversation and, and each of us say, oh, well, you know, this feels right, or um, I had that experience too, and I found a way to practice in this way that seems okay. Like, I mean, it's just important that we be able to have those conversations so that we don't go out and grab someone else's practices instead. Right. We have to out-create the system. We, we must innovate outside and beyond the system. Yeah. Yeah. At all levels. Yeah, and I'm really grateful for where conversations with the two of you and with our with our group of with our you know small community, where those conversations have allowed me to develop a lot of practices that I feel good about, um, and that aren't that are purely based on my experience and simply showing up for my allies and and developing a sense of you know curiosity that builds a practice that is really mine. Yay, fireside people. Yay. 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 You know who you are. (laughs) (laughs) 
any any final tips or thoughts or just any any major takeaways we didn't hit before we wrap this one up? Other than, you know, thanks for your guts, really, you know, over and over every day, all the time, every day. Thank you for thinking bigger. Thank you for thinking outside yourself and for every fucking thing that you do that makes you get up and keep doing it all over. Mm-hmm. Well said. Well said. I'm just going to yeah. say ditto to that. I'll say ditto also. <laughs> Okay. Well, we will see you all in a couple weeks. It's going to be two weeks um, for our next one. And uh, send us any questions you have, too. Um, we'll be answering some questions, I think, next time. We've got a, a little handful. We'll be, I think we were going to try and answer at least one question periodically. So we've got a couple we can tackle in the next couple weeks. Okay. And we will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you'd like more information on Kelly, Brandis, or Janet, or to listen to past episodes of our podcast, get some more information on our resource page. You can find all of those tidbits at everydayanimism.tumblr.com. See you next week.